Hi, I'm Joe Payne, host of The Future Built Smarter, a podcast produced by iMeg, a leading engineering design firm. Each month, I join iMeg Director of Innovation, Mike Lawless, to discuss the technology and trends that are shaping the future of the AEC industry. Our guests include fellow engineers, architects, and owners, and our topics range from artificial intelligence to net zero design. Listen to us on iMegCorp.com or search for The Future Built Smarter on your favorite podcast app. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Build St. Louis, the regional podcast that is capturing and sharing the very heartbeat of engineering design, construction, and development. I'm your host, Carrie Smith, and with us this episode, we greatly anticipate learning from Brendan Buckley, who is leader of Building Intelligence and Integration Services at IMEG. And IMEG is a full-service engineering design firm. Brendan holds a Bachelor of Science in International Business from Ball State University. He has more than 30 years experience in integrated technology design and service. And today I'm looking forward to Brendan addressing a truly unusual and I think fascinating topic, and that's the life-saving power of big data. Brendan, welcome to Build St. Louis. Thank you, Carrie. I sure appreciate it. Oh, we're glad to have you with us in this episode. And let's dive into the topic of how big data and the Internet of Things, I know I'm going to ask you to explain both of those topics to make sure we're all on the same page with you, but how that information is truly impacting design and construction and enhancing the viability of buildings for owners and occupants and visitors as well. If you could start, Brendan, by giving us as listeners sort of a basic definition of big data and also how that plays into or relates to IoT and the Internet of Things, that'd be fantastic. Sure. Absolutely. If I can probably start off with IoT, because that's what really, quite honestly, feeds when you think of big data. I mean, IoT is obviously Internet of Things, and that is having many different types of devices, sensors that are out there that are collecting data around about the environment, about other systems, about us quite often. And that information is great. That was the first step was how do we develop all of these different sensors and systems to operate on the same network, if you will, and be able to communicate back and forth, which is great. So now we have all of this data coming in. And the question that obviously came up with is, is, great, now what do we do with all this data? So that's really when you start thinking about big data, it's really being able to take all that information coming in. And the first thing you really have to do is something they call normalizing it. Because if you really think about it in the most basic format, think about your street address. It's as simple as the way that you communicate your street address can be potentially done three to four different ways. Are you abbreviating the street? Is it ST? Is it capital ST? Is it ST period? All that kind of information. And that's, again, a very basic example. But when you start dealing with data, whether it's in education or healthcare and these other different vertical markets, how that data is presented and stored is really, really important. So being able to use big data starts off with normalization of all that data coming in and then being able to, of course, store it and then being able to access it and then apply analytics and AI against it for decision support, for building different, what they call expert systems, doing you know, historical analysis and being able to drive better outcomes from that data and actions by, by leveraging all that information once it's been normalized. That was an excellent definition. Thank you. And if you've got an owner or developer building a new healthcare building, when does big data start to seep into the conversation? Is that sort of as early as possible, I'm sure, but who's at the table kind of talking sure. about that when you look at the built environment? Well, Carrie, unfortunately, the answer really is not early enough. And sometimes it's done at the very end. And there's to really have that integration supported 
you have to, again, I just about all the IoT information, all the data coming in. We didn't really talk about the integration layer. And that integration that needs to happen is to be able to be able to pull that information in. And they obviously from different types of systems, which means different types of protocols, different types of interfaces that are leveraged. So that overall integration effort really has to happen. And then that needs to really be part of the design and obviously build process of that building. Whether it's a retrofit, but it definitely if it's a new construction, being able to really think about what kind of sensors, what kind of information do I want to collect? And more importantly, what do I want to do with that information? What actions, what processes do I want to automate? And what value do I want to get out of this data? And then what do I want this building, quite honestly, at the end of the day to do? Is it kind of almost like if you compare it to the human body, it sounds like the Internet of Things is almost like the brain that tells the rest of the body. Oh, <laughs> I'm not too way off there, but tells the rest no. of the body how to function. Absolutely. And then it has to process and figure out how, what to do with that information that's coming in from all the different nerves, you know, from the whole nervous system and being able to process that information and, and make sense of it, first of all. Second of all, is then figure out what action to drive from that. So when you really look at the construction that's been done, you think about the way we build buildings and design buildings, it really is kind of the same as it was in 1970. When the whole AIA divisions all, I mean, it has evolved. Obviously, there's Division 27 and these other elements of the AIA contracts but and the way that they build it. But it, there is a difference in the whole process of how they think about collecting that information. A classic example is one of the first things to get cut in buildings, even today, is, well, we don't necessarily want all the sub-metering. And that's that the meters that we put on utilities, on electrical, water, that give us really granular level of understanding of where the consumption is truly occurring within that building instead of just looking at the end of the month at a utility bill. And we're trying to have much more sustainable building environments and all that. But one of the first things that gets cut, value engineered, as I use air quotes, is we see a lot of times sub-metering gets cut. I mean, there's a cost to it, but they really haven't thought about the operational side of that building. Because obviously, you're building a building for 30 years, typically, potentially more. And we're trying to save a few dollars on the initial construction. And then what you're doing is is you're making it harder to go back and install these meters and really not design the building with the end in mind and really think about what's the operational life, what's the operational benefit, and energy savings, and quite honestly, the the health benefits that would come out of having a a more energy-efficient, healthier building. Yeah, no, great point. And it may not be the original owner 10 years in, and maybe in terms of the marketability of that structure to other users, that makes a lot of sense to me. So you have a fascinating example. I know you do because we talked about it in the past, (laughs) but I would love for listeners and viewers to understand specifically in the realm of healthcare, one vivid example of the power of big data and how you've helped a client sort of harness that for an extremely important end goal. Please share. Sure. Sure. Yeah. In a previous life, I was working with building hospitals and designing the technology for health systems in Singapore. And a few years back, they were building a brand new hospital. So obviously this is government healthcare. So this is Ministry of Health within Singapore. Quite frankly, they are, from a country perspective, probably one of the most advanced when it comes to leveraging technology, being open-minded and trying to drive innovation throughout the whole healthcare process. And was working on a project that was going to be one of their first like truly digital hospitals within Singapore. And so went in, obviously, on part of our project, we had all of the technology from everything from nurse call systems to all the electronic medical record integration work, all of the integrated building management systems, fire security, even getting into how they handle their queue management. All of that was really tied into our project, our contract, and we provided some integration services of it to tie that together. And so this hospital opens up and they had been open up for I don't know, probably six months, maybe a year. And 
what they had noticed, and it was a large hospital of 700 beds, and it had the worst survivability rate, worst mortality rate for cardiac events. You know, these are your code blue events. That's when the nurses come running, when the blue light goes off on the nurse call system. Everybody responds. They bring the paddles for resuscitation, and literally everybody runs to respond to that event. And the typical response time is usually see a two to three minute maximum. You have all the team members there to start resuscitating, reviving that patient. And the problem is the teams weren't able to either get the information, weren't responding on time. It wasn't sure who was covering what. So that code team would not arrive until five plus minutes. And four minutes is kind of that golden time, you know, the golden four minutes where you need to get and respond and start getting oxygen and the heart going again to resuscitate that patient if you want to minimize or prevent death or minimize any kind of brain damage. So long story short, the spent some time and worked with the clients there and kind of looked at how they were, what were the challenges that they were having and come to find out, we found an opportunity to really streamline the process of notification of that cardiac event to, from detecting it to notifying the care team. And then also how we were had accountability for all the team members to make sure that they arrived and everybody knew exactly who was responding. And if we needed to identify other team members, if some weren't and to be able to do that in an instant. So the first thing we did is worked with Philips and did a automated code blue. So this is where the team in Singapore was able to work with the Philips team there. And they were able to have the, so that would automatically link into the nurse call system. So it would automatically generate the alert without even a person having to be there to hit the code blue button. Because typically a nurse that had to walk in the room, realize that the event is occurring, hit the code blue, and then the clock starts ticking. Well, you've already lost time just in that. So Philips came up with that with the initial piece of how we identify that, that event. Then we took that event and streamlined the notification process. And this is what's really key. In addition to notifying the care team, notified the management of that care team so they could see who and they would acknowledge in off their phones mobile handheld devices that, yes, I'm responding, I'm responding. And it notified all of them instantly that this code had, had occurred. Fully automatic. There's no humans involved yet. The system detected it, automatically notified. Teams already responding. It is very clear who has been notified and who's responsible. And the management can see who didn't. So if they need to step in, they absolutely can. And then it also we would tie it in so that the code blue notification on the elevators so that they could get priority access to the elevators, raise them up to the right floor. And then it did signage to help make sure that the responding staff members on that code team went to the right room and right. were providing resuscitation. So we cut the time from, that's just a simple integration between you know, the Philips telemetry to the to the nurse call, to the handheld devices, and then of course to the elevator systems, right? right. Um, and the digital signage as well, cut the time in half. So what wow. you know, the hospital had like the worst, I mean, literally the worst survivability rate went to like the best uh, wow. in terms of one year. So over a 300% increase in survivability rate for patients in the hospital. Wow. That's a fantastic example of, it seems like, you know, all the processes that you put into place, because if you were missing one of those pieces of the puzzle, it doesn't seem like it would have made sense. How is, I'm just curious, how does the telemetry re, is it connected somehow to the patient? Like how it does is. that first part happen? Sure. They have sensors that are on their chest that have leads that come off and it's a telemetry heart monitor so they're able to see if the rhythm's off or if there's no rhythm and these machines are smart enough too to detect if a cable came off so they're not doing false alerts so there's kind of three different metrics that they're going off of to trigger off of so it really does minimize any kind of false alerts so pretty solid technology plus i think just the morale of that hospital and its people because no one wants to have a poor response rate oh. you know the people side of it must have been transformed as well as the systems very much what 
in industry wide, this is going to be like the very generic overview question. But in terms of adoption of these sort of information forward technologies, where you see certain sectors that are further ahead, Brendan, than others, like I'm sure healthcare. Or sure. I know the built environment. We're not known for being quick adopters, as you said. The building yeah. process has changed a whole lot since the 70s. But where do you see these being harnessed and leveraged the most? Sure, I'd say probably the airline industry. Oh, I mean, for starters, I would airlines, and I would go with like theme parks. I mean, look at what Disney does. Absolutely incredible use of location technology. I mean, they know everything about you, and it's really about catering and improving your experience and everything from making it easier to purchase things, which of course is in the best interest of Disney. And from the experience of theme park attendants, it really provides adequate tracking. Like, okay, what are where are people spending their time? Where are they spending their money? And you know, are they waiting? So that piece of and also giving them don't make them wait in lines. Mm. Let them know when their time is up and then notify them. Don't make them feel like you know, nobody goes to a Bureau of Motor Vehicles for fun. Let's not have that experience. And the same thing goes for airports. You think about, you know, hey, we, I constantly get notified on my phone of what's the status of my flight. I know if it's delayed. I know if it's on time. I know if it's going to be a, I know when I need to check in. I know I can change my seats. I have a lot of control over my environment. And that's really the same thing that the theme park you know, folks are doing. They're doing a similar approaches in Vegas. So it's really about that consumer experience. And when we think of buildings, it's around that occupant experience. And again, it's providing that control back into the hands of those occupants. So if it's hospitals, it's how do we put more control and back in the hands of patients and patients' families. For airports, if you've checked in on a, I think the last time you got a paper ticket. Yeah. Right. The, the reason that, and I love this example because you really think about it, you just made the airline's life so much easier and so much more cost effective that what they have done is by providing value and convenience in the hands of the consumer, you make their lives easier. And so you check in, you have a mobile boarding pass. So all that is done and you download their app so they can push information and whatever they want out to you. And you make yourself available and your phone available because of the value that it brings and the convenience that it brings to you. So I don't have to go to a check-in desk. I can just walk in the airport, go through security, get on the plane. Similarly, with fast passes and that kind of technology employed at the other theme parks, if I'm able to use the app, I use their app, I have my own tracking, I let them track me. There's value to that and there's an improved experience. I don't have to wait in lines. That's what we try to tell like our healthcare clients or anybody that has an environment where you have to make people wait. Let's not waste space on a room that nobody's happy in. Nobody's happy in a waiting room. So how do we leverage technology to say, let's make that a smaller space that we have to heat and cool and manage and and let's also improve the occupant experience on let's use technology to notify them when they're up and if we're running behind on whatever that process is to communicate that and have that open link of knowledge here with those who are inside of our facilities. Exactly. I have to ask the COVID question because I think it's relevant, but we just talked about not creating spaces where people don't want to be when they're not in control of their time. As COVID was evolving three years ago and you were probably in the midst of a lot of design phases, was there drastic and rapid pivoting of your designs? Because I would think just like the waiting room, the waiting room and the buffet at the restaurant, I mean, like there's certain things that I don't know whether we'll see come back. How was that when the world changed? three years ago. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really flexible. Everything is adaptive from the standpoint if it's an office space. Well, we don't need to have dedicated office spaces anymore. I mean, we were already kind of heading down that trend in the, in the commercial real estate, so that's not terribly new, but it definitely pushed it to that next level. It was definitely the next couple turns of the crank down that evolution of being able to have spaces where individuals were at hotel, if you will, have touchdown spaces. I don't need to have a full-time location. I can come in. I just need a space sometime to spread out to potentially get out of my home. So I need to be able to facilitate that 
much more intensive use of AV systems supporting video conferencing and more intelligent video conferencing where you can have really good microphones and have cameras that can automatically track on who's who is talking, you know, especially in a conference room and you have those who are operating remotely. Telemedicine, first time because of COVID, was actually getting reimbursed. So let's right. be honest, a lot of dollars drive that behavior and it's something that luckily continues to get extended. So we're able to do teleconsults and teleappointments with our with our physicians. And also from a waiting room space, it's even more important to not keep people all in one room. Just really highlighted that. And, and then from a flex space, you start getting into hospitals. And, and quite honestly, another project that I was working on in Asia was working to convert hotels so that they could immediately become isolation mm. wards, if you will, for overflow for hospitals. So they can go into what they call pandemic mode and make the rooms go negative air pressure to contain whatever infection that is in there. And so that, okay, we can pop the carpet, you know, the, the carpets can come out, you know, there's the right kind of flooring under there. They can pull all that out and all of a sudden it becomes a hospital room that is capable of safely managing and containing patients that have COVID or something else that's even more communicable. So there's so many considerations. Absolutely. That's crazy. So from a training piece, I was thinking back to smart buildings and IoT and all that. And once, you know, your design team and the general contractor turns over the building, what's the training piece like for building managers and maintenance staff and people that are now in charge of understanding this technology and utilizing it correctly or utilizing it to its full potential. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. To really, before we get to that, I would want to highlight the fact that, that there is a staffing. We're, we're running into a staffing issue with experienced building management people. Mm. We have a lot of folks that have a lot of knowledge that are retiring. They're kind of getting in that age and, and we don't have enough of the folks coming out of school, trade schools. There's not enough focus on trade schools for the individuals that want to pursue that you know, facilities path. You know, so I know that a lot of the uh, building automation manufacturers are supporting a lot of these different schools and programs to try to build up and to get, it's a great career path. It's definitely one where there's a lot of need. And I think that also having the younger generations come in, they're going to have this data background. They're going to have the appreciated knowledge and what the power is of leveraging, not just building data, but what other kind of data can I leverage you know, in my building that can help me better respond to the needs of the occupants. And so I think the good news is, is as we start to turn over, we start, you know, hopefully to get more younger, data savvy folks that are coming out, which they are, they truly are. That's going to be even better for us to leverage the power of the data within the building and to have folks that can then be able to operate that building successfully and not just understand the mechanical side of what HVAC does, or what security or the fire alarm systems do, but also to really understand there's a lot of data that can be leveraged within the system and from other systems that are ancillary that can really drive better outcomes without adding cost. It seems almost like as you speak to the different building systems, would you classify sort of like the Internet of Things as its own, almost its own utility? Or would it be its own? I feel like it's in a different spot than just another system in the building. It's sort of like the, a master system, but I don't know how engineers look at that. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, with data is a utility. So that's, we look at that as really being, used to look and focus so much on just the infrastructure, which is absolutely critical. You've got to have the right physical infrastructure, cabling and network environment to support it. But then what's next? How do you make sure that you have the right data environment? And that is, to your point, it's, it really is its own system. It often is referred to as a system of systems. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That makes sense. 
gosh, I could talk to you all day, Brennan, but I think you have some proposals you got to get out <laughs> later this week. <laughs> Just a few. <laughs> but I, we so appreciate in this episode of learning from Brendan Buckley, leader of building intelligence and integration systems at IMEG, a full service engineering design firm. And Brendan, it's just such a pleasure. It's kind of starts selling like science fiction at sometimes at points, just how far big data has come and for the good. And I just, we just really appreciate you being with us today. Thank you so much. Great, Carrie. Thank you so much. It's been a privilege and thank you. Thank you. Come back and see us again. Will do. Will do. Thanks. Kierkegaard designs spaces with careful consideration for sound and visual display. We are acoustics and audiovisual systems consultants that collaborate with architects where sound and communication are critical to the end user's experience. We have deep expertise with a broad range of project types and are world-renowned for our performance facilities and beautiful sounding spaces. Our team is committed to serving the communities where we are based, including St. Louis. Learn more about us at kirkegaard.com.